0: WDBM East Lansing
1: FM The Impact
2: You're listening to Impact Exposure Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University This is Impact Exposure Good evening. Thank you for tuning in to Exposure on Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Stephen Rich. Tonight on the show, we take an in-depth look at a growing hobby in Michigan, homebrewing. Between an increased interest in artisan food and beverages and a vibrant microbeer industry in Michigan, interest in homebrewing has grown in recent years. With this year's American Homebrewers Association's National Homebrewers Conference in Grand Rapids that just passed, we're able to talk to experts in the industry about this hobby. This is Exposure.
1: Survivor. I ain't lost this ain't shipwrecked. I feel small in this big, wide world. And mommy ain't said honey.
2: I'm Again, I am Stephen Rich, and this is Impact 89 FM. You are listening to Exposure. This weekend, Grand Rapids played host to the 36th annual American Homebrewers Association's National Homebrewers Conference. From breweries to hobbyists, the conference allowed those interested in beer brewing to explore a wide range of subjects. And here on Exposure, we wanted to bring some highlights and explore some more topics in depth. To start off tonight, we got to talk to Gary Glass of the American Homebrewers Association about how he got his start in homebrewing in the AHA.
3: I started homebrewing about uh uh 20 just a little over 20 years ago around sometime in I believe it was 93 or 92. Yeah, I mean back then there wasn't a whole lot of uh craft beer available. Um I honestly I had a had a uh, college buddy who you know came over to my house and he had a bottle of, of homebrew, and the the concept of brewing beer at home had never occurred to me before. And, and I, I think I'd bought my first kit within a week of that experience, and been doing it ever since. I was in I was in Boulder, uh, finishing up my my graduate degree, my master's degree in in history, and uh, I saw an ad in the paper for administrative assistant for the American Homebrewers Association. So that's uh, I got got started in uh, January of two thousand. I uh, was promoted to director in uh,
2: January of 2006. And like we've said, the AHA has been around for over 36 years. And with such a unique focus, we wanted to find out how it has grown into such a far reaching organization.
3: Well, we do, we do a lot of things for homebrewers. Um, one of the big things we do is, is uh, educate homebrewers on how to make better beer. Um, a big part of that is through our, our publication, Zymer G Magazine, uh, as well as our website, homebrewersassociation.org. Um, we have uh, an, an online forum, the AHA forum, for, uh, for homebrewers uh, where, where any homebrewer can get their, their questions asked by, by fellow homebrewers. And so we've got some of the, some of the most expert homebrewers out there who are uh, very willing to share their knowledge. Um, it's, and, and that's part of the homebrewing community as well, is that homebrewers really like to share their knowledge and help other, other homebrewers. And you see that here at the, the National Homebrewers Conference. We've got 3000 people who are eager to talk about homebrewing with fellow homebrewers, people they've never met before, but they have this common bond through, through their hobby of homebrewing. Uh, it's, it, it's really a pretty unique group, um, you know, very friendly. They're, they're super passionate about, obviously passionate about beer, uh, but, uh, but brewing as well and, and just want to, want to share their knowledge. The the growth of the hobby, and and I'd like to think that the American Homebrewers Association has had something to do with that. Uh, we we do do a lot to promote the promote the hobby, um, but that growth has has allowed for um, new new businesses to to come along because there is a there's a solid market for for homebrewing equipment, and so if you go into that the the trade show we have here, you see all kinds of new things. I, I I've seen. Uh, um, Many different pieces of equipment walking into our, our trade show that I've never seen before, that's, that isn't even commercially available yet, that they're just developing and, and, and going to be releasing in, in the near term. Um, but without the growth that we've had over the last several years, that just wouldn't have been possible because there wouldn't have been a big enough market for, for them to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then every time you add a new a, a new piece of equipment or new ingredients, uh, it inspires more people and gets more people into the hobby, and so it, it it helps us continue that growth.
2: And part of the fun of home brewing is the wide variety of beers that can be made, which means at an event like this there is such a range available that picking a favorite can be very hard to do.
3: L- last night uh, we had our our, um, our club night, so we had. Uh, oh, over 60 homebrew clubs from all over the country that, that came to, to serve their beer. Um, and, and the variety of different beers that, that, that homebrewers bring and the, um, the experimental nature of, of homebrewing, um, the, there is no greater selection of beers anywhere in the world than what you have on that night in, in, uh, in, during this conference. Um, yeah, I had a, had a really incredible mead uh, that I believe was made with blackberries, so meat is honey wine. Um, had had one of the best porters i 've ever had. Uh, it, it, yeah, it, it ran, the, it ran the, the gamut in terms of the, the, the variety of different different beers that, that were available and to pin down just one would be really tough.
2: <laughs> in years past, the conference has been held in places such as San Diego and Boulder, Colorado, so we were curious what brought the AHA to Grand Rapids.
3: Well, Grand Rapids, uh, as I, I'm sure you know, is a beer city USA. Um, actually, we started looking at, at Grand Rapids even before that, that title even came about. Um, uh, Michigan is a, is, is a great beer state in terms of the, the, the commercial craft breweries here, but it has a really vibrant homebrewing community. Um, and uh, some of the homebrewers, including two, two of the homebrewers in, in this state, are on the, the governing committee for the American Homebrewers Association. And so they, they wanted to bring, uh, bring the, the homebrewers conference to, to Michigan. So, and we looked at a variety of areas. But, uh, but Grand Rapids, um, when I came to, first came to Grand Rapids, uh, I saw a, you know, a city that I, I fell in love with. Um, it's, it's a great downtown. Uh, it 's a beautiful city, easy to walk around, and, and it 's got a great beer scene. Um, so a lot of people in, in the rest of the country don 't know what, what you 've got here in Grand Rapids, um, but, uh, but now there's 3,000 homebrewers that are going to leave, leave this c- conference uh, going home to talk about what a great beer city Grand Rapids really
2: is. Because brewing, at its core, is a science, mistakes happen to everyone who has experimented with home brewing. Glass told us about one of his mistakes while home brewing.
3: I had a had a beer that I was making. Uh, was uh, intending to make a uh, uh, a mybach, which is a, a light-colored, strong lager beer. Um, and uh, part of the process is, uh, you know, when you when you're done with the with with boiling the the beer and adding all the hops, it needs to be cooled down uh in order to add the add the yeast to ferment it um and i i was using a new uh a, a new chiller for for cooling down the, the 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 beer to fermentation temperature and i thought i got it right and i was transferring into uh into a fermenter and proceeded to start cleaning up some equipment and i look back and i uh and i had already i'd already added the yeast at this point and i look back and i see uh, steam coming out of my fermenter which meant I was cooking the yeast that was there and uh, so then I, I got my, my chiller adjusted but you know that particular you know I ended up splitting it into two different batches and um, so the the second uh, fermenter had the proper temperature the first fermenter had the cooked yeast and I ended up adding in uh a completely different yeast strain, a Belgian ale strain, which I just happened to have since I didn't have any more lager yeast. Um, and the, both the beers ended up coming out great, even though I made a total terrible mistake and, and it could have ended tragically, I ended up with really great beer anyway. So
2: does that mean the guessing and mistakes of brewing can produce some unexpected results?
3: Yeah, you, you, you never know. You, you, you might find out some, some, some new technique via a via mistake. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's entirely possible.
2: And Glass reminded us that at the end of the day, brewing isn't and shouldn't be complicated.
3: Uh, you know, whenever we're talking about homebrewing, uh, what I like to say is, you know, we've got, this, we've got all this high-end equipment that's, uh, that's in our, uh, our, our homebrew expo, but um, really homebrewing is a very simple hobby. Um, it can be as simple as adding a, a can of hop malt extract in, into some water and, and boiling it, and then putting it in a fermenter and fermenting it. It's, it's, if you could make Campbell's soup, you can make beer. Um, so so I, I think a lot of people are, are intimidated in thinking that it's, it's, it's a complicated hobby to get into, but it, it really isn't, um, and it, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, once you get started, uh, it, it quickly can turn into a, into a passion. Thank you
2: You're listening to WDBM Impact 89 FM. This is Exposure, and I'm your host, Stephen Rich. Homebrewing clubs are a place for hobbyists to trade tips, swap recipes, and ultimately hang out with others interested in craft beer. We got a chance to talk with Eric Fouch, the president of the Primetime Homebrewers Club of Grand Rapids, about brewing in Michigan.
4: Oh, okay. I remember um, back in college, I, I went to Central Michigan University, and, uh, you know, of course, what do you do in college? But you drink beer. And, uh, <laughs> Me and my buddies would would get together and drink beer. One of my buddies back there in those days, it was you know Bud Bud Light and maybe Coors Extra Gold if you were being really adventuresome. And uh, my buddy always maintained that nobody liked the taste of beer; they just drank it to get drunk and to get drunk. And I always said, No, no, there's some flavor in beer. And, and we always argued that way. Well, about 10-15 uh, years after college. I'm talking to him on the phone. and he, He's talking about uh, using a keg of his homebrew at a, a camping thing that he went on, and I thought, okay, if you're making homebrew beer and I'm not, something's wrong. So I got on the internet and ordered up an online beer brewing kit, and that was about 18 years ago.
2: <laughs> so it's been a, a journey since then. Um, and was it, you know, hard to be start homebrewing? Was it a lot of mistakes and learning?
4: Uh, yeah, there were some. There were some mistakes in learning. And um you know, I I read there's a lot of there are a lot of good books out there. Charlie Papazian is the, the father of modern home brewing and he wrote books like uh The Complete Joy of Home Brewing mm-hmm. and there were some online um resources like uh the Homebrew Network. And I, I read all those books and I com- I um contributed and, and uh took part in the uh online forums and whatnot. And the first couple of batches are kind of hard to figure out. Once you get the basics down, then it's, it's, it can be very easy. If you if you brew with extracts, if you get more complicated into all grain then the process gets a little more involved. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I've got to, I've got to say the biggest improvement to my home brewing came when I joined the homebrew club and was able to talk to other homebrewers about what they were doing, what they were doing wrong and how our beers tasted.
2: Mm. Yeah. And, so, I mean, almost 20 years of homebrewing now. What, what has kept you such an adamant fan of homebrewing this whole time?
4: Well, there are a lot of beer styles out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there are 23 categories of beer recognized by the BJCP, the Beer mm-hmm. Judge Certification Program. And each category has four or five subcategories. And I have not brewed all of them. They all have very unique flavor profiles, taste profiles. Some of them you can't get in the United States, so you have to make it yourself if you want to taste it. And on top of that, um, more than just beer, um, I've also been very active in making ciders, hard ciders, peri, which is fermented pear juice, mead, which is a, a fermented honey wine, um, I've even made sake, which is a Japanese rice wine. Hmm. So there's a, a big world of fermented beverages out there to be explored, and it would just about take a lifetime to do it.
2: <laughs> yeah, and so um, like you talked about a little bit earlier, uh, you said you're the president of the Primetime uh, Homebrewers Club in Grand Rapids. And how long has Primetime been around?
4: Uh, they existed for a few years as a loose-knit group of homebrewers that didn't really— organized or anything but they finally got organized in 1992 and registered with the uh, american homebrewers association as a registered um, homebrew club so we have been in grand rapids since
2: 1992 very cool and so uh the reason we're doing the show tonight on uh homebrewing is because last week was the american Ho- homebrewers association homebrewing conference in grand rapids um was this your first time a- attending the the conference
4: uh, yeah, I heard something about that going on. Um, no, I actually the the first time that I went to a homebrewers conference actually was the last time that it was in Michigan, oh, gotcha. and that was in the year 2000, and it was down in Livonia. Mm-hmm. And since then, I just I just haven't gotten around to to getting back into the the um, the circuit and getting out to the uh, annual homebrew conferences um, in Livonia in 2000. There were 300 attendees. And uh, this last week in Grand Rapids, there were 3,000.
2: Wow. (laughs) So it's grown quite a bit.
4: Yeah. And yes, I did. I not only attended it, but I was on the local planning committee. Mm -hmm. So I was in charge of what they called the Beer City Social Club, which was an area that had uh, four 12-tap bars set up. And I was in charge of coordinating and scheduling brew clubs, homebrew clubs from all across the country to come in for two-hour shifts. And serve their home brews to uh, people
2: who are attending the conference. Wow, so you're doing quite a bit of work. Um, And and Primetime itself was also involved with the conference. What sort of things was uh, your club able to do there?
4: Well, one thing we did um, in preparation for this is we did collaboration brews with four different uh, breweries in the Grand Rapids area. Hmm. So we got together with White Flame Brewing Company, which is out in Hudsonville, not too far outside of Grand Rapids, and we did an, an Imperial White IPA. Uh, we we collaborated with uh, Bob's House of Brews, and we made a bread saison. The uh, Homebrew Club we we baked over a hundred loaves of pumpernickel, red, pumpernickel bread, and we brought it into the brewery and uh, chopped the bread all up and tossed it into the mash of a of a saison beer. Um, we did a collaboration with Grand Rapids Brewing Company, and we also did a collaboration with Hopcat, the Hopcat here in Grand Rapids. Oh, very. So
2: you guys had have... all of
4: those. All of those beers were on tap, you know, special tap releases during the conference for conference attendees and whatnot. And actually, the uh, um, Grand Rapids Brewing Company did two commemorative beers. They did an IPA with us. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, a pale ale with us, and then they did an imperial IPA. And then Hopcat, which is owned by the same entity, they we did a, uh, a pale ale with them. So Hopcat and Grand Rapids Brewing Company did a, a limited bottle release of these three collaboration beers, and they they uh, put them in 22 ounce bottles, and they have them for sale at the uh, at Grand Rapids Brewing Company and Hopcat in uh, Grand Rapids. And they're they're really good beers, and if you want to pick something like that up, they still have some bottles left.
2: Oh, yeah, and uh, one of the things I noticed, which I, I think you, you bring up a uh, an cool point about you guys working with these breweries is at uh, events like these and across home brewing and brewing in general, um, it seems that everyone's really, uh, really all about the community and cooperating together. Um, do you notice that, you know, living in Grand Rapids where there's so many breweries, have you guys had a chance to go to a lot of these places and, uh, you know, work with different brewers? Um,
4: yeah, there there is. There's basically no culture of competition or anything. Um, in brew pubs in general, and, and especially in Grand Rapids, the, the beer culture is, is really something unique. Um, compete You might think competing brew pubs across the street from each other might not want the other guy to do very well in business, but it's, uh, you know, the whole idea is um, the brew pubs has made Grand Rapids and the Grand Rapids area a beer destination. So they realize, you know, a rising tide raises all boats. So if if uh, someone over at the Bob, if, if he's brewing a batch of beer and he needs a bag of crystal malt, he can call up the head brewer over at Grand Rapids Brewing Company and they'll run a bag of malt over so that he can keep brewing. <laughs> and, he, you know, Grand Rapids Brewing Company knows that next week the Bob might be, you know, throwing them a bag of Marisot or pale malt or something. Mm. So mm. we... It's a real, tight, real tight-knit real tight community. In fact, they formed the uh, GRSOBs, Society of Brewers. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, a collaboration of all the professional brewers and brewery owners in Grand Rapids. And they get together for monthly meetings, and they, they plan things like collaboration brews. They'll pick a beer style or a beer event in the city, and then all the breweries will do their version of that beer or pick a charitable cause. They, they did one for... Uh, they did a tree beer where the concept was um, just make a beer that features a tree and <laughs> a dollar from the sales of each pint went towards buying a bunch of trees and uh, putting in a brewer's grove at a local park down on the river in Grand Rapids. Mm. And all the brewers showed up and planted the trees. So it's a real neat beer culture we've got here in Grand Rapids.
2: Yeah. And that that was another thing I wanted to talk about. Um, you know, Gr hosting the conference, it's really kind of an honor to be able to uh, get the homebrewers conference because it's been around for 36 years. As you said, you know thousands of people attend it. Between that and being voted Beer City USA, is it two years running now that they've been voted Beer City USA? Well, um,
4: we got we won the title one year ago outright. Mm-hmm. The year before that, we tied with Asheville, oh, yeah. North Carolina.
2: Yep, that's what it was. And then
4: actually. This time around when the uh, when it was about time for the polls to start coming out, the uh, the polling outfit that ran that poll retired it. So there will be no more polls mm, for Beer City USA until someone else comes up with some way to, to do it. So mm-hmm. Grand Rapids has pretty much retired with the title.
2: That's great. Yeah. So between uh, that and hosting the conference, it it really appears that brewing has found a really solid home in Grand Rapids. What do, you think makes, what do you think is special about GR that makes it such a hub for the craft brewing industry?
4: Well, I think most of the, uh, um, the brewers downtown and, and brewers in Michigan in general would tell you it's the water. I mean, they, they, they pin so much of the success of Michigan beer on the quality of the water. Mm. It's all uh, Lake Michigan water, all coming from the same source pretty much and it's just an outstanding you know in terms of the the chemistry and and uh the quality of the water um you can put up a brewery anywhere and if you get bad water you know what's in your what's in your beer Mm -hmm. 90 percent water Mm -hmm. so if you start with bad water you're going to end up with bad beer Hmm. so that and um just a big thing you know buy local stay stay local so they're supporting local agriculture and local businesses to buy materials for the, and ingredients for the beer. And just, you know, the nostalgia of, you know, back in the day there were six brewing companies in Grand Rapids in the 1800s, and then they all joined forces and combined to form Grand Rapids Brewing Company in the 1890s, mm-hmm. basically to compete with, um, I think it was Anheuser-Busch, you know, taking over the whole country with their version of a a pilsner beer and that lasted through prohibition and then when that that shut everything down we're only now starting to recover to get back to how many breweries we had number wise back in the 1800s and we're nowhere near saturated we've nowhere near saturated the market when you take into account how many more people there are now yeah yeah, and um it's a good it's a good time to be in the craft beer industry or the craft <laughs> beverage industry in general.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it does seem like it's uh, you know, between brewing, distilling and craft wine and everything, it's it's really grown across the board. And back to the conference, uh, you know, at a conference like this, a lot of information is thrown at you. But what's one of the bigger takeaways that you you took from the conference? Um
4: being on the the planning committee uh, I, there are a lot of conferences that take place, a lot of technical seminars and whatnot that take place that, that give talk on all kinds of uh, interesting topics. I wasn't able to attend very many of those, mm-hmm. but uh, being a part of the conference and, and out on the floor and listening to the comments, I heard many comments that uh, people were very impressed with uh, with the, uh, the DeVos Center where we had the conference held, the facilities themselves, mm-hmm and also just the quality of the homebrew that was available and the quality and um, variety of brew pubs in the downtown Grand Rapids area that were walkable. And it's just it's just a, a wonderful beer culture to have um, access to that kind of stuff and then to have the opportunity for a, the convention to come to our town and, and be able to really show it off.
2: Mm-hmm. And did you have any any new or unique or unexpected beers or anything at the conference?
4: Probably one of the most uh, unexpected things that I ran into, uh, you know, we were talking about craft beverages in general. The The craft beer industry has exploded, and right now the craft cider industry is growing at an exponential rate behind it. And then following that same business path is a, is a quote-unquote new craft beverage that's being rediscovered, which is mead. Mm. Uh, fermented honey wines, and you know that's the oldest fermented beverage in human history, but it's being rediscovered now. And in the conference, there was a seminar that I was not able to attend, but I was able to sample their their meats. Um, they're making sour meats. There's a a big trend in the craft beer industry to make sour beers. There's like Jolly pumpkin in Dexter, Michigan is a, a solely a, a sour beer producer there are a lot of breweries that have sour versions of, of some of their beers and the thing that that i didn't expect to see coming was somebody's experimenting with sour meads and it just it gives it an interesting little tang and something you're not expecting and i'm surprised that nobody thought of it up until now because it's the first i've heard of the concept
2: yeah that is that's really yeah, that's something I would never think of either. Um, well, I think we're about to wrap up, but before I let you go, um, uh, just a few more things. Do you think uh, brewing for you will always be a hobby, or do you have do you have plans to try to turn it into a career?
4: Well, on the on the one hand, it's always a a home brewer, Every home brewer's dream is to have his own brew pub and just sit behind the bar and see the satisfaction of people coming in and and liking their beer. Um, for me. Um, I don't have serious plans to try to make something like that happen. If a set of circumstances comes up where that can happen, you know, I think I would be all about it. Um, so, and I know a lot of guys that are that are actively pursuing that. I guess uh, I'm not I'm not ready to take that kind of a leap yet.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: But one one thing that one other comment that I would make about the conference, I might have missed it, but I don't remember seeing any. Homebrew clubs out of Lansing or East Lansing, there was a uh, Grand Ledge was there, um, but I would I would just recommend anybody who's in the Lansing area if you're making your own homebrew and you want to make better homebrew, find a homebrew club to join because that will open your eyes to uh, better ways to make beer, how to make your beer better, and just the camaraderie of other people who enjoy drinking your beer.
2: Mm-hmm. Definitely, if it's something you're interested in, it's a it's a cool way to it sounds like a cool way to uh you know learn a lot more and and learn together. And so if someone is interested in uh Prime Time where can they go to find more information about you guys?
4: Uh we're on the internet, uh Prime Time on Facebook, mm-hmm. primetimebrewers.com uh either or we're we're an open club, it's an open uh Facebook site. So go ahead, get on there, take a look around and um you know, like I'm, like I'm fond of saying, name another hobby where you get to drink your mistakes.
2: <laughs> yeah, and that's what actually one of my questions was. With you know, with brewing, mistakes happen to every single person. Um, so I was wondering if there was a time that you had that you made a beer that didn't work out or made a mistake where you know I've heard of beers exploding in their in your basement or anything. Have you had anything turn out really badly for you?
4: I've had, you know if you're if you're paying close attention to sanitation, you're not going to have too many problems. Mm-hmm. Everybody makes a beer that doesn't turn out the way you planned it to and it tastes like something different there there was i've I've done two hundred and seventy five gallon batches now, and in all of that time, I can think of one cider that I dumped, mm. and that's because i i didn't check and i got preserved cider cider that had preservatives in it so it oh. just wouldn't ferment very much and by the time i figured that out it, it just tasted so nasty i dumped it down the drain
0: mm-hmm.
4: um other than that not whole batches of beer but i'll i will find every once in a while in my basement i'll find a, a case of beer that's been squirreled away for six or seven years and and it just didn't age well oh. <laughs>
0: I'll,
4: I'll dump those bottles out but yeah it's Another good thing about the hobby is there are no known human pathogens that can survive in beer. (laughs) So even if it tastes bad and you don't like it, it's not going to hurt you.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for, for talking with us today. This is Stephen Rich, and you're listening to Exposure on Impact 89FM. As Toland mentioned, meads and the use of honey have grown in brewing. And with that growth, many brewers have started to examine what it takes to be a beekeeper in order to understand how honey can affect the process. We spoke with the president of the Michigan Beekeepers Association, Terry Toland, about what it takes to raise bees.
5: Uh, The Michigan Beekeepers, it is the uh, oldest uh, agricultural association in the state of Michigan. It was formed in uh, 1865. Um, our 150th uh, anniversary is next year, oh, wow. and um, we are we are here to promote and develop beekeeping in the state of Michigan.
2: Very cool. And so, um, just to get an understanding of uh, you personally, um, I'm assuming you've been beekeeping for a very long time, but how did you get your start? What's your history in beekeeping?
5: Uh, it's just something that I've always wanted to try. Um, a local nature center by me was thinking about starting a club, and I walked through the door, and there was about eight old-time beekeepers there, and they said they were going to make me into a new beekeeper, and they did.
2: <laughs> um, and as a beekeeper, um, I, I, that's one of the agricultural things that I'm not really familiar with. So, do you mind going through a typical season for me? You know, when does it start? How do you prepare? When are you harvesting the honey? That kind of stuff.
5: Well, you can start. You can start at any time. Mm-hmm. It's because there's is, there's is, um, quite a bit to learn about uh, beekeeping. And um, you can, it can be as simple as just keeping a colony or two of bees just to have a nice supply of honey for yourself.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Or you can get right back and get down into the entomology aspect of it where you would um, take a bee and go into the bee under a microscope and dissect it and look for diseases within the bee. So you can get it as complex as you want and you can make it as simple as you want. Gotcha. And um, you can start at any time. Usually you get your bees. You, um, the time we, we can get bees for packages, that's how you start a high colony,
0: mm-hmm.
5: is in the spring, um, April, April, May area. Um, but you have to have all your, your bees in a row, your ducks in a row. You have to have your, your hives all set and ready to go by then because when your bees come, you have to take them out of the shipping package and put them into the hive. That you're going to use and at that point in time you start you become a beekeeper you start learning how to keep your bees what to look for um, you have to educate yourself and, and learn about things to look for in the hive and um, it runs through the summer uh, they collect nectar which they make into honey and we have different blooms at different times there's spring blooms summer blooms fall bloom blooms um, in the fall um, Goldenrod and Aster in Michigan are about our last two blooms of the year. Okay. That is the last time you can get food for the bees. So at that point in time, you could take off your honey supers. That's boxes of honey that is going to be for you. Mm-hmm. And you can harvest at that point in time. You can harvest at any time, but that is when you'd want to get it off. And then you prep your bees for the winter time, and the bees are alive all winter long in their hive.
2: Mm-hmm. And in the winter, you know, obviously they don't fly out. So do you, when, when you're preparing, is it making sure they have food? And also, I'm assuming, making sure they're staying warm and not freezing to death, correct?
5: Absolutely. You uh, make sure you leave them enough food. In Michigan, we try to leave them at least 80 pounds of food. Wow. <laughs> and you want to supplement that to make sure they have enough to get them through the winter. And um, some people wrap their hives to uh, insulate them against the winters. You want to make sure they're um, protected from the wind from the north and west. Gotcha. And these are things that we just we just do to, to help them out to survive the winter.
2: Yeah. And besides obviously the honey, what are some other advantages to keeping bees?
5: Well, ecologically there's um you know, they're, they're pollinators. They 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 pollinate from flowers to trees to fruits to vegetables. They mm-hmm. have um one of every three pieces of food you put in your mouth is probably poll- insect pollinated oh. and bees honeybees are a huge part of that
0: mm-hmm.
5: and um it's it's actually quite quite relaxing going into a hive with fifty to sixty thousand bees, believe it or not, <laughs> because you have to be calm and um, the, you you learn to be calm around the bees and they actually you know calm you mm
2: mm-hmm. And one thing um, I've heard about honey is that uh, regions can really affect the taste of it and the color. And so um, if you get honey from, like, say, a cherry farm, it could be, appear to be really red and have kind of that cherry flavor. Have you experienced that at all, having bees in different area and getting, uh, you know, different varieties of honey out of that?
5: Absolutely. It, it all has to do with the floral impact you have around your, your bees. Uh, they will forage sometimes up to five miles for food, mm-hmm. but um anything any type of floral arrangement by you will affect the taste of your honey mm-hmm. and every 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 beekeeper's honey will taste a bit different. We have people that keep that really like to keep bees on blueberries because the honey you get from the blueberry plant has a blueberry taste to it mm-hmm. yeah,
2: and have you um you know have- is there any way to control that? Like, have you put plants around your bees that you, um, you know, believe have a better taste or anything like that? You can. Mm-hmm.
5: Um, I have bergamont by my house. I plant a lot of bergamot. It's a, a flower, and it has a, the nectar has a minty, a little bit of a minty flavor to it. Oh. And my honey, my honey is a little bit minty, and it tastes pretty good. Oh, and yeah. we can take bees and put it on buckwheat, buckwheat honey. The buckwheat plant is a uh, buckwheat grain is used for like buckwheat, wheat pancakes and things. Uh And you can get honey from the buckwheat plant. And people put bees on that plant just for that reason, because it is very dark. Mm -hmm. It is very, very strong tasting. It has a real earthy taste to it. And um, you either like it or you don't like it. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's something that, you know I never think about is the how the region could affect it. And so, um, you know, moving a little bit wider, kind of looking at at, at beekeeping as an industry, one buzzword, no pun intended, around bees um has been surrounding the colony collapse, which um is a term that I I know uh, involves uh, you know, just whole colonies dying out, but what exactly is is this problem?
5: They haven't actually pinpointed what actually is the cause. They feel it's a a, a few markers that are causing it but they don't have an exact answer for us at this point in time on what caused colony collapse. Mm. And so what you... happens is the, the, colonies, the colony um, either doesn't find their way home or for some reason the bees go out and they never return. Okay. So you'll go to a hive and there just won't be any bees in it at all. Hmm. And usually if you're pesticides or something, um, if they're poisoned, the bees are in there, they're dead. You you can see all the dead bees in there. If they froze to death, you have a bunch of frozen dead bees. If they starved, you know that they starved because there's all those bees. But you go back to the county, and there's just, there's, like, nothing there.
2: Hmm. And have you uh, personally experienced that? I have not. Mm. Well, good. (laughs) Good to hear. Yeah. Um, And have they been able to kind of trace where this comes from at all? I know you said they don't know exactly what's been causing it, but do they have any general idea of where it's coming from?
5: Uh, Not at this point in time. You know, There's speculation. And there's a lot of concern about um, about certain things that are used nowadays um, that weren't used prior to colony collapse disorder, mm. but um, that would be pure speculation, and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to go there at this point in time.
2: Gotcha. And is there is there anything that beekeepers have been able to to do to you know combat that and prevent that?
5: Um, not really. Um, they they do feel that uh, varroa mite is a a, a a parasite that we deal with, mm-hmm. and varroa seems to be a big factor in it. So beekeepers are asked to control their varroa mite count in their in their hives. Okay. Every hive has varroa mite. It's a parasite that we deal with. So we we ask the beekeepers to to go in there and we teach them how to check for it and what they can do to try to knock down the number of uh, mites that they have in
2: their colony. Gotcha. And um, So coming back to Michigan, there seems to have been a a growth or at least an increased awareness in beekeeping in Michigan. What makes Michigan such a good place for beekeeping?
5: Um, Michigan has a a very diverse um, agricultural um, crop Mm -hmm. within the state. Um, we have um, the cherry crop. We have uh, apples, um, the peaches. We have we have a lot of lot of fruits. We have a lot of vegetables grown here in the state. Um, pickles are a big thing in the state. Hmm. All of these things are pollinated by insects, so honeybees are here.
0: Mm-hmm. Plus
5: we have uh, an abundance of wildflowers, and um, even though it's uh, considered an invasive species, we have. Um, Star thistle, star thistle honey is like some of the sweetest honey you'll ever taste.
2: Hmm. Very cool. And so, for someone who's interested in getting started in beekeeping, what do you think the best way to get started is?
5: I would suggest, first off, is to join a club. We have many clubs around the state, um, and they're a wealth of knowledge. Usually, it doesn't cost much to uh, go to a club. You can... um, a lot of them are, are free. You can just go there and learn about beekeeping. Uh, most have a mentor program where somebody's going to actually take you under their wing, help you out a bit. If you have problems in your yard, you can call them up and they'll come over, take a look for you, see what's going on. Mm-hmm. There's quite a few schools. Um, we have uh, just a, a lot of, we're, we're growing as far as uh, an association the mm-hmm. numbers, because of the uh, the amount of interest in the state of Michigan.
2: Okay. And uh, if someone's looking for more information on the Michigan Beekeepers Association, where should they head to?
5: Um, they could feel free to uh, check our site out, uh, Michigan Beekeepers at org. All right. And we also list local clubs on that site. Okay. And we have a bring big spring conference, and we have a fall conference.
2: Cool. So definitely a... a a vast amount of knowledge available. Well, uh, I want to thank you so much for being with us uh, today, Terry. Thank you, Stephen. Welcome back to Exposure on Impact 89FM. I'm your host. Today we're discussing homebrewing and its growth in Michigan. Many brewers have centered a focus on using the best ingredients to get the absolute best product. This has led to the development of an organic brewing interest. Now, since there are many components to a beer, being truly organic can be hard. James Hoffner of the Seven Bridges Cooperative helps explain this complexity of certified organic products.
6: So we basically, I mean, we have so sort of the main USDA organic certified that. And then even more, um, I guess, exact is we had CCOF, California, Certified California Organic Farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's our our California certification. There's all other kinds of, you know, organ tilth and stuff like that. But this is the one we went with, the uh, actual locations in Santa Cruz. So we work well with them. And, and, and yeah, so we're certified as a handler, seller, all that kind of stuff. So, and all our products are organic in the shop. So our whole facility is
2: organic. And Seven Bridges has had a focus on providing organic supplies for quite a while.
6: So it got started in about 96, 95, 96. And there was some, the original founding members, you know, sat around drinking homebrew and thought about what would be a cool business and everyone likes to homebrew. So of course a homebrew supply shop. So, and then to make it, you know, our niche, like to really stand out, we thought, well, there's not really any organic homebrew shops. And being in Santa Cruz, California, um, a lot of people are really into using good organic ingredients. So we figured that's what maybe we should start. Or they figured um, they should. that's how we should start. So they started, you know, sourcing organic ingredients back then was probably next to impossible. We only had breeze, base malt, and a couple specialties, and hops and stuff like that. But slowly we've been, you know, ramping up or more organic farms are growing, stuff like that. And then so I finally got involved. I, I bought my first brew kit and and, uh, and equipment kit at Seven Bridges because um, I lived there. I went to school there and started making beer and then started getting involved and knowing all the guys there. And it actually took me like a year to get a job there originally just to go pack DME, do all that kind of stuff. I quickly advanced and got to do a bunch of other stuff. And now I'm the assistant manager. So I do sales. I brew back there. I do customer service, we do ordering, all kinds of stuff. Um, and yeah, and, and so like I said, I'm, a, I'm the secretary of the board, I'm one of the owners, assistant manager. so I do a lot of work around there and I enjoy it, it's a lot of fun.
2: But the question remains, why organic? Does it truly make a difference when brewing?
6: And I usually tell people, and it, I don't have any science behind this, but I've heard a lot of people that when they use, some people they get an organic bag and um, some conventional. Um, when you actually mash it, people are telling me that they get actually a better efficiency. Mm. Um, so sometimes the downfall, you know, is the price and stuff, but but if you get a better efficiency, you're kind of paying for that. And you can also feel good about the products that you are yeah. buying a for the environment, B for the health of your, you know, your own self. And, um, so yeah, it's just an overall good product and, and definitely better for the environment and yourself. There was a woman here today who said she, you know, she really liked us cause she didn't really trust any other ones. She knew we were all organic and stuff. So she loved it. And, um, so yeah, I think a lot of people really do it for their sake of mind and, and, and what they're putting in their body should be organic and stuff like that. So I feel like a lot of people really do that. Um, not necessarily the flavor cause, and that's why we bring all these beers to NHC is just to show people that So a lot of people have this, Oh, organic beer. You can't make it. organic. We, we, we think we make good organic beer. And so we bring a lot to showcase and see yeah. if we can't, um, get people to change their mind.
2: Organic is usually more expensive. James, however, believes that this price difference is going to decrease.
6: I think, I think there's room for expansion. Um, Again, sometimes the price definitely deters people, and the price is getting better. Um, We've got a lot of good feedback that our price is competitive um, in terms of, you know, bulk sacks. Um, But, yeah, and and, and there's more and more farms starting to grow organic because I think there is a demand, especially in California and the West Coast, people are really into that. Um, More hop yards are getting planted as we speak. We've got some of those main hops like Citra, Simcoe, and some of those things like that. So uh, we definitely are seeing some more openings for organics. Slow and steady, I would say, though. Slow yeah. and steady.
2: And because he is constantly around brewing supplies, James has a good amount of time to brew in his own.
6: All the brews at our booth, um, I brewed half of them, actually, and you know helped out with the others. But yeah, I, I definitely brew for Seven Bridges, the shop, um, also personally for home. So I do R&D and do test kits and stuff like that um, that we can drink and test new hops, stuff like that. And then, of course, I, I always have homebrew at home, so I do all kinds of different stuff for my
2: buddies and housemates
6: and stuff like that.
2: And finally, since he's from California and only in Michigan for a limited amount of time, we wanted to know if James had a chance to enjoy some of the local favorites.
6: You know, I just actually, I've been drinking, especially in the hotel, we, there's a restaurant, it's the Founders Pale Ale I really enjoyed. Yeah. Um, it was just solid. And after, I mean, I've had so many home brews of Freaky Sours and all the stuff like that, it's really nice to come back and get a really solid pale ale. So that one stands out in my mind because I had it last night, big one with dinner, and it was really nice to mellow out after the, after the big uh, main expo that we do. You're listening to
2: Impact Exposure.
4: At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim
6: streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station.
0: For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week.
4: Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what
1: new music we play here on the Impact.
4: Only on Impact Primetime
1: gentlemen want to hear our specials sure first
6: we have the seafood special it's been sitting around here for a week we're known around these parts for our food poisoning wouldn't it be great if you could be warned of life's risks if you have diabetes you can It's called A1C, a simple blood test that can help measure your risk of complications such as heart attack. To find out more, go to www.diabetesa1c.org. Brought to you by the American Diabetes Association, Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation International, and the Ad Council. Now back to
2: Impact Exposure. This is exposure on Impact 89FM. Like James explained to us, certified organic breweries is a long and tough process. Just finding the proper resources can be difficult, but maintaining the status is downright too difficult for many breweries. In fact, in Michigan, Grand Rapids Brewing Company is the only brewery to have certified organic status. Sean Blanc is the general manager of GR Brewing, and he starts with a bit of history about the Grand Rapids Brewing name.
7: The original Grand Rapids Brewing Company was around great downtown Grand Rapids, um, in the late 1800s. And, um, basically when Prohibition came in, it shut them down essentially. So in the early 1900s, they shut down. So it didn't exist for a while. And then in the early nineties, I believe, um, don't quote me on those dates, but, uh, there was a Grand Rapids Spring Company that opened up, um, on the outskirts of town, um, out on 28th street. And, um, It was around for about six, eight years, and it just wasn't super successful, I think, based on location and whatnot, and they ended up closing down. Um, And the name Grand Rapids Brewing Company was just kind of out there, which is a great name for a brewery in Grand Rapids. So uh, clearly, um, at that point, Mark Sellers, who is our owner, he uh, also owns Stella's Hopcat and uh, McFadden's. He had uh, decided to... uh, buy the name Grand Rapids Brewing Company, and build a brewery downtown.
2: And we were curious about the specific requirements in order to be considered certified organic.
7: No more than 4% of your ingredients can be non-organic to be actually USDA certified. Um, you have to pass your certification audits by the USDA every six months. Um, yeah, you just have to purchase organic product and brew with organic product. So. Yep, you have to track it, have all your recipes, like, there's a lot of paperwork involved. It's, to be organic, um, it's it's harder, so it's more of a challenge, but for us it's worth it because the product we're giving out. And
2: And obviously with these requirements, new and unexpected challenges emerge.
7: I think the biggest challenge is creativity. I I think, uh, that's why, one thing I'm really proud of growing up Spring Company for is, uh, we've been able to have a lot of creativity based on how good our actual brewers are. So Jake Brenner is our head brewer and um, it's quite amazing what he has been capable to do based on the limited ingredients. So, I mean, our first year we brewed 50 different beers for a new brewery and being organic. I I found that (laughs) that stat kind of got lost and, you know, Shuffle a lot, but I always remember it because that's one of the most things I'm proud of.
2: One of Grand Rapids Brewing's specific challenges was producing a mango beer organically.
7: To source mass like organic fruit is number one; it's outrageously expensive, and number two, it's just it's hard to find. Like for what we need it for, Um, and if we did find it, (laughs) we'd have to charge everybody ten bucks a pint which we wouldn't sell the beer anyway. So uh, what we ended up um, doing was sourcing um, organic tea. Um, so like our mango blonde, which is our number one seller, is um, a blonde ale infused with a uh, mango Ceylon black tea. So um, what we found by doing that, um, which actually was a win-win for us, I don't think we really knew it going into it, but um, when you infuse it with the tea you end up with not that overpowering fruit flavor going on in there, so it's just enough fruitness to it where it doesn't, like, kill your stomach and you can only have one. You know, some people love fruit beers, but some people like them, but they can only drink one because it's just too fruity. But, like, the blonde ale has that mango-like touch to it, but it's not, like, overpowering where you, you can drink several.
2: And every step of the brewing process includes more requirements in order to stay on track.
7: Uh, You just have to write down. Everything has to be recorded. So you can't just clean up after a batch, sanitize, and move on to the next batch. You have to stop and take note of what you're doing, um, how much clean supplies you're using, where you're using them, how you're using them. Like The USDA is pretty thorough on what they expect from you.
2: And Sean believes that Grand Rapids Brewing has added another element to the Grand Rapids beer community.
7: I think we just add a, another piece to the puzzle. So, for me, I think um, brewing and breweries like I see it as this huge like puzzle. So every time a new brewery comes, I hope that they like fill a little gap. You know, like us being organic, and then you you know founders just making all kinds of crazy beers that are awesome. Vivant. Um, with their focus on the Belgian style, like I think you know, just different breweries doing different things and focusing on different things. So um, it's really turned into a destination, as you can see.
2: Thank you for joining us tonight. Special thanks to station manager Gabriela Saldivia and general manager Ed Glazer. Tonight's show and all other exposure shows can be found on our website at www.impact89fm.org. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Stephen Rich, and you have been listening to Impact Exposure 89FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.